God's word is saying here, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Let it be inward and outward. Let it be both. Welcome to The Present Witness. This is Pastor Patrick Hines here at Broadwell Heights Presbyterian Church. Uh, today I'm going to post part two of the series on biblical womanhood, and today looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 and what God considers to be uh, beauty, incorruptible beauty that is very precious in his sight. Um, it's a pretty amazing description that God's word gives us there in 1 Peter 3, and I know that for women today, the idea of being beautiful, being attractive, uh, that's something that uh, is a concern. It's always a concern. It's a concern not just to, to women, but also you know men want to feel attractive and things like that too. But what does scripture say is precious in the sight of God? And what is adornment really look like, inward and outward? One of the things that uh, I remember many years ago when God first got a hold of me and, and broke through my stubborn foolishness and my sin and showed me the depth of my sin and drew me irresistibly to Christ. Um, I, at the time, I was 18 years old, there were certain uh, girls and there were girls that dressed a certain way and things like that, that I tended to find attractive up to that point. But as, as God began to kill off the old Adam, it was amazing how girls that once were attractive became rather repulsive and girls that weren't as attractive became far more attractive. And I think that's one of the marks of Christian growth is that men learn uh, to value the women in their lives uh, for true beauty. And in fact, their, their true inward godliness, that gentle and quiet spirit, uh, will bring out uh, an outward beauty uh, that you don't see in anyone else, no matter, no matter how much they may be beautiful in the eyes of the world. And so I want to encourage especially uh, men to listen closely Listen closely to um, the word of God here and uh, the, the exposition of it and make sure you understand what true beauty is, um, especially as you think about uh, marriage or if you are married and God has given you a godly wife, her worth is far above rubies, it says in Proverbs 31.10. And you need to, to praise and thank God every day if you have a godly wife who is an encouragement to you, who is a support to you, who helps you to be better than you could ever be without her. Um, I, my heart breaks for women uh, in the confusing and insane day and age that we live in and the standards that they're held to and the, the kinds of, of outward physical, really trashy um, beauty as the world sees it, how that's put forward to them and it makes them uncomfortable. It really is upsetting um, to Christian men. It ought to be. So let's understand what scripture says true beauty looks like and what the inward adornment of a gentle and quiet spirit, why that is so wonderful and precious in God's sight. So I hope you find this to be edifying. Let us pray together now for God's blessing on our understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now again in the name of Christ to ask you to help us understand these passages of your holy word to recognize their authority, that they are breathed forth by your mouth to us, the, the words themselves are from you, that you are speaking to us directly in them. Help us understand them rightly and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 
3 and 4. We're going to read four texts of Scripture this morning. This is the first of those, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, to the left there in your Bible a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 9, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, this is God's word. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Okay, now let's turn over to Ephesians 5.22. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 24. Ephesians 5.22 to 24. <clears throat> this is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then one last passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5, this is God's word. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his infallible word. R.J. Rushduni once said that culture is simply religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. What our culture today calls beautiful is in many ways repulsive to the godly. And what our culture despises is in many ways delightful to the godly. Since the fall of man, there has been a very sinful obsession with outward appearance And while we are obligated to take care of and to to groom ourselves, it is easy to allow fashion, riches, and sexuality become idols in our lives. It really is kind of a strange thing if you think carefully about about it. Why are we so interested in being attractive to other people? There are few things more fleeting than the praises and approval of mankind. Public opinion ought not to be nearly as important to us as it often is. People are very fickle in terms of what they like one day and dislike the next. And so we turn to the word of God now to find in it a portrait of what God considers beauty to be in women. What God considers beauty to be in women. And we now look at what is called in the text, one of the texts we just read, incorruptible beauty. 
and very precious in the sight of God. And for all godly women, nothing could be more important than that, than what God calls incorruptible beauty, and what God calls very precious in his sight. Because the godly woman wants the approval of Christ more than anything else. And I want to encourage every woman here to have being beautiful to God your main priority when it comes to how you think about what beauty is. I would encourage you, ladies, to commit some of these passages to memory. They are very important. Commit some of the phrases to memory, especially if you are influencing or discipling young women. The phrases of a gentle and quiet spirit, things like that are very, very important for younger women to understand. There is nothing more beautiful than true biblical godliness. And there is nothing more lovely than women who exhibit the attributes that are spelled out in these texts of scripture, which are part of this morning's passages. So I've given you three points this morning. The first, I've called true biblical beauty and modesty. That's the first point. Secondly, that a godly woman is trustful and submissive. And thirdly, she is a godly mentor to younger women. And if she is a younger woman, she's a teachable younger woman. So let's go back to 1 Peter 3, if you could turn back there again. 1 Peter 3, 3. I'd like to walk through in detail each one of these passages as there is so much that is important in each verse, each phrase. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Verse 3 there in that text says to the women, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Okay, stop there. Everyone, men and women, want to look decent and want to look good. And the Word of God specifically tells women here not to allow your beauty to be outward only, not to be merely outward. And the application is clear. There can be a real temptation to women to be so concerned about your outward appearance that the cultivation of true inward beauty is neglected. Now, look at the three things that are listed there in the text. It says, don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair. Now, some translations translate that as braiding the hair or plating the hair, it says in the King James Version. Now, that does not mean you're not allowed to to braid your hair, okay? At the time in which 1 Peter was written, uh, there were certain hairstyles that were associated with lewd women, and this was one of them. It was a certain kind of hairstyle that was associated with prostitution and and women who had bad reputations. The second thing, wearing gold. Okay, here again, while the godly women of the Old Testament, like Sarah, Rebecca, the wives of the patriarchs, they did have gold. They wore gold. The Israelites at times wore gold. At this time, this was chiefly the kind of attire that was worn by uh, uh, harlots and wicked women. And thirdly, putting on fine apparel. That is not a prohibition against wearing nice clothes, but rather against extravagance and excessive costliness. That's what's being warned against there. Always remember, we are to adorn our profession of the gospel in every way that we live our lives, in everything that we do, the way we dress, the way we act, the way we spend money. Now, as as an example, if I were to drive up to church um, in a Ferrari with fire painted on the side, And if I was standing here in a $4,500 custom-made suit, which I assure you I am not, wearing $18,000 worth of custom-made jewelry, wouldn't you think that was a little strange if I looked like Mr. T up here? Matthew Henry said, people should take care 
that all their external behavior be answerable to their profession of Christianity. What's the general principle here? What's the general principle of what is being said by Peter? Is that we ought to adorn our profession of the gospel with moderation, with temperance in the way we dress, what we wear, what we put on, all those sorts of things. And that's being directed especially towards women here. That their adornment is not to be merely outward, although there's nothing wrong with looking nice. But not to be so focused on those things that they cause you to neglect the true beauty. The true parts of, of biblical femininity and biblical beauty that God says are beautiful. If we are able, we ought to try to look washed, groomed, and decently dressed. But ladies, if you spend three hours doing your hair and putting on gold and wearing excessively fine clothes, the word of God is saying to you here, your focus is too much on outward adornment. It's too much on that. It is important, but it's not that important. God's word is saying here, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Let it be inward and outward. Let it be both. Moderation and temperance are the keys here when it comes to outward adornment. Now notice verse 4, the contrast that's given. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And so what God is saying to women here is that there are ornaments and there is attire that excel outward ornaments and outward attire in their beauty. Nothing is more beautiful to God than a gentle and quiet heart that trusts in the Lord Jesus fully. Nothing is more beautiful than that to God. It is what the text describes as incorruptible beauty. It's beauty that can't be lost in a house fire. It's beauty that can't be lost by any circumstances that come from the outside at all because it's inner. It trusts in the Lord. It's incorruptible beauty. A gentle, quiet spirit. Ladies, let your souls be adorned with the clothing of Christ. A gentle, quiet spirit. A gentle, quiet soul. Now I want to elaborate a little bit on what each one of those words uh, mean. They're, they're very vivid, very important words. Uh, what does gentle mean? A gentle, quiet spirit. That word gentle is also the very same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the same word. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who are not easily angered. That's really what the term carries with it. It's saying that God looks at that attribute in women as incorruptibly beautiful. A woman who is not easily angered. A woman who is, who is meek. And the, the term also set, carries with it not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. That's what the term means. Those are the attributes of Christians in general. But here in 1 Peter, they are especially prized among women. Don't let your beauty be just your hair, just your face, or your clothes, or jewelry. Let it be that you are not impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. Let it be your gentleness. Let it be your humility. Let it be that you are considerate. Let it be that you are meek. You're not easily angered. Those are the marks of true biblical beauty. God sees this as beautiful in you. It's that way in God's eyes. Now the term quiet, that term quiet means peaceful, tranquil, well-ordered. When it says a gentle and quiet spirit, the godly woman who has that incorruptible beauty has a peace about her. She is tranquil. She is well-ordered. The heart of a godly, beautiful woman is not easily angered. She doesn't snap and start yelling. 
She is void of angry passions. She has a joyful submission about her toward her husband and family. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she doesn't worry about the future excessively, but she rejoices in the days to come. One of the hymns that I sing to my younger children in the evenings is called A Christian Home. And the second stanza of that wonderful hymn says, Oh, give us homes with godly fathers, mothers, who always place their hope and trust in him, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers. That's a hard one. Whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, or noise never bothers, or just fill in the blank. Whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim, a home where each finds joy in serving others, and love still shines though days be dark and grim. Whose tender patience turmoil never bothers. That's the way you would describe a godly woman who has an incorruptible beauty. A godly woman is not easily bothered. Turmoil does not send her uh, spiraling down. She has hope. She is gentle. She is tranquil and undisturbed. My great-grandmother died when she was 106 years old back in 2007. She was 64 years the uh, widow of a Baptist uh, pastor. My great-grandfather was a Baptist minister who died when he was 44 years old of a severe heart attack. And my great-grandmother was left with five little kids when that happened. She never remarried, and they, they had it pretty hard uh, a lot back then. My mother once told me a story about her mom, my grandmother, who was the daughter of my great-grandmother. When she was a teenager, she once broke down and cried out to her mother, Why would God take our father from us like this? Why has he left us to eat potatoes for almost every other meal? And my great-grandmother's response to her was, very calmly, Don't you ever question God. Her two other favorite sayings I learned at her funeral were, God is so good and it just doesn't matter. Whose tender patience turmoil never bothers. Whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim. Will women feel the sting of loss in a situation like that? I'm sure she did. I know she did. Great heartache and have spiritual lows. Yes, of course we all do. But in her heart, she trusts in the goodness of Christ. The one who bled and died for her soul. That's the most important thing to her. That's why the turmoil, through it all, there's a gentleness and a quiet there. There is meekness. Not easily angered, there is tranquility and peace there. She trusts in God. She knows he's good. Therefore, she has a gentle, meek, quiet, tranquil, peaceful soul. Sisters in Christ, that is, according to the word of God, that is very precious in the sight of God. Very precious in the sight of God. Now turn back over to 1 Timothy 2.9. I want you to, to see one of the phrases used here. 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, <clears throat> verse 9. just want to key in on one phrase here that I think is very, very important, especially in the day and age that we live in now. 1 Timothy 2, 9 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Any of that sound familiar? Very similar to what Peter just said, except there's one difference there. That phrase, modest apparel. Now, I want to give you an illustration. When I took a course in seminary, one of the electives I took was called folk religions. And we had the, the great privilege of listening to a man who was 84 years old and had done pioneering missionary work in the Congo and in different parts of the world where the gospel had never been, places that had very little exposure to, uh, to, to the civilized world. And one of the things that we learned in there is that when pioneering missionaries enter unreached parts of the world, there are almost always three things they have to immediately tell people, um, among other things, to stop doing. The first thing is stop killing babies. 
Godless cultures tend to do that, like ours. Secondly, stop cutting and scarring yourself. And thirdly, put clothes on. Have you ever noticed that? You watch the documentaries, you see about cultures that have no exposure to the Bible, no exposure uh, to any kind of Christian civilization. They tend to be extraordinarily immodest. Yes, some of it is due to warm climates, but a lot of it's just plain immodesty. And the undressing of America that we've seen just in the last 40, 50 years is part of our cultural apostasy. The disrespect to the human body is a natural consequence of our collective turning away from God, from truth, from Christ, from righteousness. Now that term for modest simply means appropriate. It's saying, ladies, wear appropriate clothing. And while this passage is not overly specific as far as appropriate lengths of clothing or appropriate cuts and things like that, as a general rule, I think we can say this. I would encourage women to err on the side of caution and err on the side of covering more as opposed to less. I once heard a Christian woman speak to this issue with great insight. She said, if people see someone wearing a police uniform, what do they assume that person is? A policeman. If someone sees someone wearing a nurse's gown, what do they assume they are? A nurse. If we see women who are dressed immodestly and the way that immoral women dress, we will assume that that woman is what? Immoral, wicked, bad. Many years ago, I started working uh, on an essay that eventually I'm going to try to finish. It was titled, The Proverbs 7 Woman, How to Recognize Her and How Not to Be Her. I once taught a group of teenage men at a retreat uh, this passage. We drilled into it in great depth, and I told them, it's just a matter of time before you meet this woman. And the question is, will you be ready when you do? And notice just a couple of verses from Proverbs 7 about this woman. Proverbs 7, verse 10, the immoral woman, or as the King James Version says, the strange woman. Proverbs 7, verse 10, and there a woman met him, this this unsuspecting guy who's just wandering down the street. A woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent and defiant face, she said to him, and so on from there. Now everyone who reads that passage knows what is meant by the attire of a harlot. We all know what that means. In opposition to this, godly women are to wear modest clothing, appropriate clothing. And my sisters, you want to be modest because it is pleasing to God, but also for the sake of your Christian brothers. You do not want to be a stumbling block to them. Remember, the prohibition against adultery contains within it something else. The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And so, ladies, even if you don't feel like you dress immodestly on purpose, remember that there are men all around you. And men are very visually oriented when it comes to sexuality. And I say to you this. This is why scripture speaks of this immoral woman in Proverbs 7 as wearing the attire of a harlot. Why do they do that? To attract male attention. Why? Because men are visual. There's a reason why Jesus, when he elevates the seventh commandment and explains what it means, he says that if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. You'll notice, I'm sure it can work in the other direction, but it's primarily a male problem, that kind of thing. Why is there instruction in the word of God to women about dressing modestly, but not directly to men? The same reason. Do men need to dress modestly? Of course. 
But think about the plague, the scourge of pornography in our culture today. The use of sex to sell everything is primarily aimed at men. And so, ladies, be concerned with the chastity and holiness of the men around you. Be modest. And I would add one more thing. The kind of man you want to be married to, for those of you who are single or younger, the kind of man you want to be married to is going to find immodesty repulsive anyway. So the biblical woman is marked by incorruptible beauty. Is she concerned about how she looks and taking care of herself? Of course. But there's a much greater concern for what God says is incorruptibly beautiful. A gentle and quiet spirit. Godliness. A peaceful heart. She dresses modestly out of love for God, respect for herself, and love for her Christian brothers too. Okay, let's look at point number two. Turn to Ephesians 5.22 and following. Ephesians 5.22 and following. Ephesians 5.22 to 24. I'd like to read these in your hearing again. Ephesians 5.22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay, stop there. Here we have what is probably the most hated part of the biblical teaching about women. When it comes to marriage, women were not designed to lead. When it comes to marriage, women were not designed to lead, but to follow, specifically to follow their husbands. And while, when I've done pre-marriage counseling and in my own experience, 97% of decisions made in families will be joint decisions where the husband and wife are entirely in agreement, there will be those moments when there is an impasse. And in those situations, the wife is required to submit to the husband's leadership and to follow him. There is hierarchy in the Bible. God spells it out very clearly. We have to believe and practice it. And brothers, when these situations occur, when there is that impasse, and you have to make the call, and you, she is expected to submit to and follow you, it's a lot easier for them to submit if you've established a long track record of demonstrating by words, actions, and attitudes that she is precious to you, that you love her dearly, that you put her needs and desires before you own, and that you would die for her if need be. It's much easier to submit to a man like that than to one who lords it over. One reason our culture doesn't like this passage is that so many men are directionless, visionless, have no ambitions, no goals, no legacy they're hoping to leave behind, etc. And sadly, for many men in our culture, their vision of manhood doesn't go much farther than getting their guy to the next level of a video game. And now guys, if that's you, don't expect a woman to submit to you as to the Lord, it says. And to the married men with daughters in this room, we must model the kind of godliness that our daughters will one day have to submit to. It ought to be a joyful submission, a trusting submission. Wives ought to be ready, willing, and able to submit to their husbands because that man's a godly man. He's worth following. He loves us. He's always done what's best for me. And to the unmarried women here of all ages who have the desire to one day be married, you must not settle when you marry. Do not settle for someone because you're afraid of being alone. You must wait for a godly man. A man who will lead and to whom you will be willing to submit. Because once you're married, you have to submit to him. Wait for a godly man whose goals and ambitions and life you can make your own. Wait for the man that you know you want to help along the way. Remember, God created you to help him. If you end up married, you're his helper. He needs your help. 
You've got to marry someone you want to help, whose goals you want to help him accomplish. That man will not be able to do what God has called him to do without your help. Do you want to help him? And will you want to submit to his leadership? The reason I'm emphasizing that is verse 24 is the absolute truth. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's a very important attribute of biblical womanhood. Now, in contrast to that, I want you to see if you can hear a pattern in these next few verses I'm going to quote to you here. Proverbs 21.9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.19. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 25.24. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. You see a pattern there? Years ago, I worked as a surveyor's assistant, and we did uh, just dozens and dozens of what were called location surveys for mortgage loans. Every time a, a house is mortgaged, the, the bank's got to make sure the house isn't encroaching on someone else's border. So we would go and knock on people's doors to, to make sure that they didn't come out armed and try to hurt us because we were walking around their house. We would let them know we're there. One time, a very nice elderly man met us at the door, very pleasant guy. And his wife came up behind him, and she was absolutely chewing him out. She didn't want us there. She was yelling at him, yelling at us, wanted us to go away. And this poor guy stood there saying, it's, it's okay, dear. Yes, dear. It's okay, dear. I, I understand, dear. And then we were finally done, and he shut the door. And the guy I was working with turned around looked at me and said, I ain't never getting married. <laughs> if they're all like that. I used to watch Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls where he's always out in the wilderness trying to test his British Special Forces training against the elements. And one of my, one of my boys in his younger years said, he must have a really contentious wife. <laughs> Better to dwell in the wilderness. <clears throat> For some reason, he wants to learn how to live in Alaska and Vietnam and who knows where all. Ladies, if you do marry, you will make or break a man. Okay, You want to be submissive. You want to have a gentle and quiet spirit. You want to have as your vision and goal to help him, to help make him as, as good as he can be, to bring out the very best that's there. The guy that you, you end up married to, if you end up married or if you are married, is flawed. He's got all kinds of problems and sins, but you can help to draw out the best that's there. Your life will be captured in one of two ways. And to the ladies here, I would encourage you, remember these references. Write them down. I think, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I do have them in your Thoughts for Sabbath meditation. Proverbs 12, 4. In Proverbs 14.1, very important verses. Listen to these. Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. And then Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. You will either build your house and be the crown of your husband, or you will pull down your house with your own hands and be rottenness in your husband's bones. And to the men in general and to the married guys here, men, I just want to give you an exhortation. You have to learn how to listen to godly women. You need to listen to their knowledge, their insight, their wisdom, and their perspective, even if they're not as theologically well-read and astute as you are. You need to listen to your sisters, to godly women, to listen to your sisters, your aunts, your mother, your grandmother, and women at church. Listen and learn from them. Husbands, learn to be quiet and hear your wife. 
Listen to what she's saying. Ask her for advice. And then be quiet and listen to it. Heed it. She knows you better than anyone else. And her unique perspective is vital to you being good in this world. And brothers, she can't help you if you do all the talking. Learn to be quiet and listen carefully. Ladies, build up the men in your life. Be an encouragement to them. When that passage in Proverbs 14.1 says that the foolish woman pulls her house down with her own hands, it's not talking about the mortars and the studs and, and the siding. It's talking about the people in there. A foolish woman is going to slash and burn everything in her sight. But a godly woman builds her house. Meaning what? She is an encouragement to the people there. She sees their flaws but emphasizes the strengths and tries to draw them out and make them stronger, make them better. So when the scripture says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, the husband's the head of the wife is also Christ the head of the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Godly women are trustful and submissive. And part of what brings this about is that the men they know are trustworthy and godly. Okay, thirdly, this morning, a godly mentor to younger women. Very key passage, Titus 2, 3 through 5. Let's look at this one together. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, if you'd like to turn there. Excuse me. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Titus 2, 3 through 5, verse 3. says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Okay, stop right there. One of the great losses of our age-segregated world today is the older, younger paradigm of discipleship that is so plainly taught in Scripture. And while people in general tend to flock to their peers because they, they tend to have more in common and they're, they're more, they make friends more easily with their peers, what is lost, if that is the only contact we have with people, is this, the transfer of wisdom gained from life experience. We lose that if we don't embrace the older, younger model. We must be vigorous students of the Word of God. We must avail ourselves of great books but there is also no substitute for life experience. It is one of the ways that God drives in the nails from his word, which then hold us together as people. It is one thing to know that all things work together for good. It is quite another to experience suffering and hardship, which forces you to live upon God as if that was true. It is one thing to know that the counsel and plans of the Lord will always stand to all generations. But it's quite another thing to live for years and years and years and watch God's faithfulness in raising up godly young men and women in the church. It is one thing to know that God is faithful. It is another to see that faithfulness demonstrated in your own life and in the course of your conduct. And so godly women here, you must look to older women in the church. You must look to older women in the church and to the older women, you must be reverent in behavior, it says in the text there. The older women are to be reverent in behavior. What that means is religious, suitable to what is sacred. In fact, one of the translations I looked at says, to translate this, this verse as, in deportment as doth become sacred persons. Women are to be reverent in that way. They are to be godly, religious. They're to have something spiritual, something biblical to say. Older women are, are not to be slanderers. 
And he, interestingly enough, you know what the term that's used there is? It's the term diabolos, which means devil. Don't be devils. Don't be slanderers. Don't be accusers. Don't be people who chew people up behind their back or, and talk poorly about people when they're not there. Older women are also not to be given to much wine. And that phrase there means not in subjection to or enslaved to wine. The consumption of wine obviously is not wrong, but if we are in subjection to it or enslaved to it, that is sin. Even if life is difficult or painful, women are not to turn to wine or drugs for comfort. That is the clear teaching of the word of God. Reverence and behavior, not slanderers, not given to wine. And then finally, teachers of good things. The older women are to be teachers of good things. And here it is. Here's what they're supposed to teach. Look at verse 4. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, stop right there. Two things. To love their husbands. Older, experienced married women have much that they need to impart to younger women about how to bring out the best in their husbands. How to love them. All younger women who are married know that they're supposed to do that. They're supposed to love him. But here the word of God is saying that there's something missing there. The older women need to show them how to do that. It needs to be modeled before them. Also, to love their children. Same thing here. Older women who have successfully raised godly children, they must pass on their wisdom to the younger women with children. So much is at stake, and there is so much wisdom that needs to be passed on to the younger generation. The biblical instructions on raising children and loving husbands, it's quite clear we're supposed to do them. But the applications of the biblical principles can be difficult to fully grasp. And again, life experience in these matters is of great importance. If it weren't, God would not be commanding older women to teach these things, would he? There is much that life experience gives. And I'll say, my generation and those younger than, than me, we, we do not value the older generation. I want, want to tell you, it, it says absolutely nothing about your piety, your wisdom, or your godliness, whether or not you know how to operate an iPhone. It's not that, that God's word is insufficient. It's just that so much of its wisdom must be applied in unique situations. And those who have done it for years and years and years are going to be a lot better at it than you if you're younger. Those who have been doing those things for a long time have so much to teach. And those whose lives are lived walking in these truths, they need to be seen by the younger women. The older women need to be seen by the younger women doing these things. Look at verse 5. More things that they need to teach. More of these good things they teach. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay, let's look at each one of these. Discreet. That term discreet simply means self-controlled. The older women need to teach younger women how to be self-controlled. How to be mild-mannered. How to, how to hold it together without blowing a gasket and screaming at your kids or your husband. The second one, chaste. That simply means pure Holy, innocent. That's what the Greek word means. This is in stark contrast to what often characterizes younger women. Many times younger women are rash. Many times they're immodest, reckless, and are anything but discreet and chaste in their affections and behavior. Thirdly, homemakers. That means busy at home, working at home. A domestic keeper of the home. That's what the Greek word oikurgos means. And we'll cover that a bit more. I'm going to do one more sermon on Proverbs 31.10 and following. That'll be the last one on womanhood. And that would be in stark contrast to the loud and rebellious, immoral woman of Proverbs 7.11, which says, 
her feet would not stay at home. Paul also told Timothy about ungodly young women in these words, 1 Timothy 5.13, And besides, they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Godliness among the older women needs to be transferred to the younger so that those things don't happen. The fourth thing listed there is good. The older women are to teach the younger women to be good, and that simply means to have high standards in all things. Fifthly and finally, obedient to their own husbands. Okay, here's a popular one today. Obedient to their own husbands. And I want you all to rid your mind of a drill sergeant issuing orders to a cadet. There is a headship in the home, and the husband is the head of his home. Women must fight the results of the fall, which were pronounced by God after Adam and Eve fell. Listen carefully to what God said. This holds true to all women and all men of all generations. To the woman, God said... I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your concession. In pain you shall bring forth children. In key phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The woman will have a desire to control her husband, but he will rule over her instead. The woman is not allowed to usurp the authority of her husband. They are created as equals in the image of God, but the husband is the head of the wife. But because of the fall, a woman is going to have a natural sinful desire to kind of just hover over him and control him and bring him under her dominion. And we all know exactly what that's talking about, don't we? But she is required to obey him. The older women are to teach the younger women not to do that. The older women teach them, you need to obey him. You got to obey your husband. You have to obey him. Now, he is not to be harsh or bitter towards her, but loving, as loving as Jesus was towards the church. And we'll get into that more when we do some sermons on biblical, uh, being a biblical husband. Believe me, there's, there's more beating coming. Nevertheless, there is hierarchy in the family and in marriage. Husbands must never use their God given position of authority to in any way hurt or to in any way embitter their wives. Very key text, brothers, I would encourage you to remember this one Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be bitter toward them. Very critical term that's used there. Men, God commands you not to be bitter toward your wife. And I would argue by extension that we are not to be like this toward women in general either. The Greek verb here that's translated as bitter, pekrino, means to embitter or exasperate or render angry or indignant. Men are never to do that. Never embitter a woman. Never exasperate or make angry or indignant. And when that verb is used passively, it means to be embittered or irritated. We are not to do that. We're not to bring that about in women. Wives are required to obey their husbands, and husbands are required not to embitter or exasperate their wives. We are not to make them angry. So, brothers, let's say that your wife or your mother or your sister is very sad, or she's in pain, or she's in a really, really bad mood. We must notice that the command of Colossians 3.19 is unqualified with regard to the well-being or mood of your wife. Do not be bitter toward them. But what if she's in a bad mood and she's being nasty to me? Do not be bitter towards them. Ever. (laughs) You see why Jesus had to come and die for us? Our calling from Christ is to love as Christ loved the church. Always, regardless of mood, regardless of anything. And brothers, only a biblical man is going to be able to do that. 
Women, the same scenario applies in reverse. Obedience to your husband and being all these other things, they're not optional. They're not conditional. They are commands. They're commands from God. And what's the end result? Look at the very last phrase of verse 5. In order that the word of God would not be blasphemed. In order that God's word would not be blasphemed. What is the result when Christian women are not taught these things by order women? The word of God is blasphemed. Now the usages of that verb for blaspheme, that that term means here to slander. We all know what slander is. Slander means lie about. That the word of God may not be lied about. It also means to revile, to defame, to speak irreverently, impiously, disrespectfully of or about. When women don't have those attributes, God's word is slandered. God's word is lied about. It's defamed. It's reviled. That's what happens when women professing to know the true God do not exhibit the attributes and qualities that are spelled out in Titus 2, 3 through 5. Younger women, I want to make this point to you. You've got to be teachable. And you must desire relationships with older women in your church. I know everyone is busy, and I know everybody's shy. But these are the commands of the Word of God. And the consequences of neglecting this older, younger women discipleship paradigm are, the Word of God is blasphemed. I know we live in the midst of a culture of independence and rugged individualism, a a culture that's dominated by a, I, I don't really need anybody kind of mindset. But biblically speaking, no one is independent. No one is independent. We are supposed to bear one another's burdens. We are supposed to need one another. We are supposed to depend upon one another. And so, younger women, as much as your culture has told you to be independent, that you can go it alone, that you don't need anybody, that you're an island, that you're strong, that you can do it, that's not biblical. You need older women in your life. God says you do. It takes humility to be teachable. It takes a humble heart to be willing to sit and learn from someone else. It takes Christian maturity to practice Titus 2, 3 through 5. It takes true godliness to practice the older, younger paradigm. So in conclusion this morning, biblical womanhood is characterized by that which is beautiful and precious to God. Biblical women have gentle, meek, and quiet, tranquil, peaceful souls. They have the self-respect given to them by God and a love for their Christian brethren such that they adorn themselves modestly. They are not excessive in the way they live. They take care of themselves, but they don't obsess about the way they look. They are trustful and submissive. The younger women look up to, admire, and learn from the older godly women in their lives. They learn from them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. And the older women are reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not enslaved to wine, and they are teachers of good things. See how important these things are? And so we've seen that this morning. That's the portrait of biblical beauty that God has for women. And may God grant all women here a vision for the kind of godliness which is not just precious in the sight of God, but we're told in Scripture is very precious. The Holy Spirit put that emphatic adjective, very precious, in the sight of God. In closing, I'd like to read to you the words of the end of Proverbs 31 as it describes the the wife of noble virtue, the, the godly woman. Listen to this in closing, Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and honor 
are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Married guys, when was the last time you just praised that woman that's married to you? When was the last time you did that? And he says, many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. You're the best on earth. Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. The vision that God has of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood is glorious, it is joyful, it is where happiness is, it is where our hearts find a home. And it's tragic that our culture is turned away from it. May God help us see that what his word says is the very best. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for speaking so clearly to the women who are here and to the men. And we pray that these truths from your word will be received with faith and love, that they will be laid up in our hearts and practiced in our lives. And I pray, dear God, that you would raise up a generation of godly women who have the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, who are trustful and submissive, who are godly mentors of younger women and younger women who are teachable and who listen and who pursue godliness with everything that is in them. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church, located at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee, and you've been listening to the Protestant Witness Podcast. Please feel free to join us for worship any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. sharp, where we open the Word of God together, sing His praises, and rejoice in the gospel of our risen Lord. You can find us on the web at www.bridwellheightspca.org. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.